This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Can you dig it? Greetings, dear listeners. Uh, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by Dispatch Media and the Dispatch.com. Uh, go to the Dispatch com to find out when I might actually cut my hair. Um, all right. Oh, and today's episode is sponsored by uh, our friends at Car Shield and the Bradley Foundation. Two names we all associate with each other. Um, so I am talking to you from beautiful Homer, Alaska, and I it's legit beautiful. Um, if I could show it to you, I'm actually parked up on a hill looking over s- suburban Homer, if such word labels can b- apply. And the entire area is just rung by these mountains, some of which are, have glaciers on them. Um, and um, and we're staying out at the end of what is called Homer Spit. Homer Spit is a, uh, as I, I think I mentioned in the G file yesterday, it is the longest um, road into the ocean in the world. And it's just this long stretch, basically a glorified sandbar that goes out. And there's a hotel at the end of it called the Land's End. And um, we're staying out there. Uh, we're leaving today after we go halibut fishing. So we're going to smell awesome in the car ride to, to Anchorage. And um, anyway... Uh, we have, it's not that we have no guest today. It's that, uh, we are finally allowing Nick Pompella speak after the requisite six to eight months of, of the mortification of the flesh, uh, that, that Jack went through as well. And, um, and so we would just figured we would do a little conversation, um, from my rental car, and from the basement of my house where he is watching Zoe, Pippa, Gracie, and even Ralph. So, Nick, uh, welcome to a, 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 not quite your first speaking role on, the, on, on this podcast, but one that goes on for more than um, 40 seconds or something like that. How's it going? That's true. It's good. Um, you you forgot to take the padlock off before you left, which is a damn shame for me, but it's been good. Um well, wait, which, which padlock, the padlock on the, on the food shed, the padlock on the front door, um, the padlock on the, the, the collar of pain. I mean, there are lots of, lots of padlocks I left behind. But, yeah, I'm, anyway. I'm still, I'm still in the cage. So, so one of the first in the Russian nesting doll of padlocks that you have, but, um, I, I have been, I have been utterly shocked in the short time that I've gotten to know Pippa, just how like you really have the duality of dog, which is the thing I, I didn't realize is that you have the platonic ideal of the friendly dog in Pippa. And then you also mm-hmm. have the dog that you need to earn its respect. And Zoe. it's really been a wonderful experience. That's, that's, that's not a bad way of putting it. I mean, Pippa is a, um, she's a lover, not a fighter. Um, and, uh, though Zoe can be very sweet. I mean, the way, um, I put it for a long time is that Zoe is the white trash swamp dog equivalent of Daryl from the walking dead. And Pippa is like the dumbest daughter from Downton Abbey. And, um, and so Pippa's all sweet and, um, a girl of simple needs. And, uh, Zoe's much more complicated, um, and eager to kill. And people, People don't quite get on the videos I post of them where Pippa goes Leroy Jenkins and ruins Zoe's hunting. 
that mm-hmm. they are both fulfilling their true nature. Because <laughs> Pippa was bred to flush out birds for humans to shoot. And so oh. her whole job is to charge right in, make a big ruckus, and get the critters out of the get out into the open. And Zoe's whole job, after thousands of years of of careful evolution of survival of the fittest in the swamps of Georgia and South Carolina is to get dinner for herself. And they're just different priorities. But anyway, how's the weather in DC? Um, last night. So my, I, I, yesterday it got so hot that I actually just uh, committed myself to not opening the door or having to leave at all. And the only time at which I had to do that was around 11 PM when Ralph had been out for a while and wanted to come back in and I opened the door and it was as if like a solid mass just entered the house. Um, It was actually insane. I mean, the, the, I'm sure that the getting used to the constant light of Alaska when you're not used to that is incredibly difficult, but in some ways I think we, we all long for some amount of cold. Like this is the problem with this area as I've discovered after having only been here recently is it really still is a swamp, literally a swamp in many ways. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. My wife tells a story about how she grew up in Fairbanks and she never experienced hot and darkness at the same time. Mm. Um, and really never experienced humidity until she was, I don't know, like 12, right. She was on some trip. And the door, like in Tennessee, and the plane stopped in like, I don't know, Tennessee, Louisiana, someplace like that. And the doors opened and it was one of those back in the days where a lot of planes, uh, people deplaned on the runway, you know, so just like the open air comes in and it was dark and humid as hell. And she was like, what the hell is this? Because, you know, in, in Fairbanks, if it's light out, it's, 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 um, it can get hot. It's rare. I mean, it's more common these days. Um, but by definition, if it's dark out, it can't be hot. And what people, what the thing is sucks about DC and Louisiana and the fifth plane of hell and a couple other places is that <laughs> like, at least in Arizona and places with dry heat, when the sun goes down, things cool off really, really, really fast because that damn little ball of fire in the sky is the thing that's heating everything up. But in like DC, when you go out at 1130 at night and you can still shoot a scene from Barton Fink sweating over his screenplay, um, it is so horrible. Anyway, uh, people probably didn't turn in for this for the weather. Um, so we should probably move on. Um, sorry, that's a float plane taking off in the distance, if you can hear that. Um, and uh, um, yeah, it's color. We'll leave it in. So, um, (laughs) I've been sort of crazily out of the news, which makes writing columns very difficult. Um, but out of like manna from heaven, there was this piece, this thing that just popped. Do you know how I should, before I file a column, do you know how that, that thing from the African American museum popped up all over the place? Like where, what, what was its origin story? Um, I saw it. I don't actually know like when the web page on the museum's website went up. Uh, the first thing I saw was a couple of people at National Review, I think, actually tweeting about it. Yeah. So I think it might have been one of these things where s- straight up it just got put up within the last week and then Pundit Land went crazy with it. Whose phone is ringing? Not mine. Uh, we should also say you may also hear the stray noise on our end as oh, that's right, we the have... world has been thrown into chaos. Yeah, I have workmen in my house that you are... Um... Uh, house sitting me for it, which I appreciate. Um, yeah, so for listeners who don't know, they probably do know by now if they spend any time on Twitter, there was this Museum of African American, the, the National Museum of African American History and Culture, um, newly in the last, I don't know, what, 10 years on the mall, uh, has this, has a deep website about talking, thinking about race and all this kind of stuff. And they have this long article on thinking about whiteness and white culture and part of it is like you know those heimlich maneuver uh 
posters uh, or like you see in some restaurants or like you know, the, the good hygiene pictogram kind of thing you'll see in some diners. It's like that, but about um, white culture. They have like this two page thing about white, uh, how to identify whiteness and white culture. And some of the crap on there is just like if you took its assertions and they turned them and you didn't change their meaning, but you just drew conclusions about what they're saying about black people, it would be indisputably racist. Right. So the thing is, is point after point of white people um, think hard work is important. White people think hard work leads to success. White people believe in politeness. White people believe in punctuality. There are all these kinds of things. And the implicit thing shouting from behind it is, um, so you're saying black people don't believe in these things? And like, if right. I went around saying, or non-white people to be more ecumenical, but this is the Museum of African American History. Um, and if I went around saying, oh, you know, the thing you have to understand about black people is it's in their culture, they don't believe in punctuality. Or, oh, you know, they don't, you know, the black people, the blacks, you know, as, as Donald Trump might say, they don't, you know, they don't really value hard work the way white people do. I mean, all of these things, which should, they don't, I'm not should get you canceled, but like should get you deeply criticized for saying they're asserting as sort of these external, uh, permanent markers of whiteness. And, um, and the thing that drives me crazy about it, um, and I was going to do a big, long G-file about it, but I don't know if I'm going to be able to because I'm going to be on the plane tomorrow starting at 6 a.m., um, is that uh, uh, aside from the ham-fisted stuff, aside from the fact that the person who created this thing is a uh, white, I, I'm assuming Jewish, uh, diversity consultant, named, I think, Judith Katz. The thing that bothers me the most about it is this, it, I, I think people are overusing the term Marxist these days, but there is this sort of post-Western culture, post-colonial studies, post-modern, whatever the right label is, attitude about, you know, cultural Marxist thing that has just, that, that, that conflates bourgeois norms with, with, with white essentialism. And, um, you know, like the, one of the dead giveaways is that according to that thing, white people care about, uh, white people think Christianity is the norm and are bi biased against multi-God religions. Um, I know a few black people. I, I read, um, I know a little bit about American politics and culture. Um, I missed entirely where it was much more common among the African-American community to be open-armed to get open arms and welcoming of pagans, druids, Viking, Norse mythology, you know, pantheism. Uh, you know, if you look at the Pew data, it confirms what I think most, most normal, well-read people already knew, which is that African-Americans are more churched than white Americans, that they go more regularly. Um, and same thing with Hispanics, you know, whites come in third in regular church attendance in this country. And, and so there's this desire sort of like with the, um, you know, there's, there's this scene in, um, Michael Burley's book, the third Reich, where he's trying to explain what the Nazis did. And I'm not making a liberal fascism point. I'm not making a, they're all Nazis point or any of that kind of stuff. But what he describes, it's sort of like the scene in, in Indiana Jones, where they replaced the golden Isle with a bag of sand, um, where, um, what the Nazis were trying to do in early 1930s, Germany was the guy, some member of the, I think the Czech government in exile makes this point. He says, what they're trying to do is take, it says, imagine a railway bridge and you just spend your time replacing each stone on the railway bridge until, and each bolt and each rod or whatever, until it's a completely new thing. And if you do it over time, carefully enough, you create an entirely new thing without anybody thinking it replaced the old thing. 
And when you do that with like, when you try to say that notion that politeness is white and therefore to be viewed with skepticism, um, and you're trying to replace it with something else, the something else that they're trying to replace it with is a real year zero has no basis in any culture, any reality that I'm aware of. And it's really super creepy. I mean, take the politeness thing. Like there has never been a society, read Fukuyama's book about, you know, the origins of the political order, whatever it's called. Um, there's never been a society anywhere in the world that doesn't have norms of politeness, right? It doesn't have conceptions of good manners. And in fact, you no longer can talk about if you cannot talk about us talking about a society that doesn't have notions of politeness and good manners, isn't a society. It's just like, like the definition of a society is a group of people with s some rules about how they interact with each other. Even, you know, David Scarbeck, our friend who does prisons will confirm that prison gangs have rules about how you approach each other with respect. Right. And there are rules about these kinds of things. Um, and this idea, and so when you, when you implant this idea at a Smithsonian institution that politeness is a white thing, what are you giving non-whites permission to do? What are you, what, right. what, what, what is the, and anyway, I just find it so, I found that thing so unbelievably Orwellian and creepy, um, when it wasn't just incandescently stupid. Well, what I think is really funny about it is that on the on the religion point and the the poly polytheism thing and apparently how you know black cultures are traditionally more accepting of multi-god faiths or whatever i thought two things were really interesting about it one which valerie who is silently watching us our intern um just like said and i didn't even think about it which is that of course when you point out the logical inconsistency which is that black people are like way more churched than white people are, then what the argument has to turn to, and you can picture the argument happening in your head, is, well, that's only because they were brought as slaves. And mm -hmm. so they're, they're only Christian because they were Christianized by their slavers. And so, like, it, it's definitely, to your point, of being a year zero kind of thing, which is that the assumption is that you should just remove all pre-existing culture, and you should be kind of left with nothing, this total blank slate, that black people should be working from or else if it's not a blank slate, you've adopted some aspect of white culture, which is just like, first off, impossible, of course, you know, but second off, like, it's a question of whether or not that would actually be a good thing. If, if, if your values are like politeness and punctuality, is it really going to be a good thing to wipe all of that off? And then second off, what I think is so funny about it is that the argument from, uh, all of the major media institutions about the capitalization of black while keeping white lowercase mm. this idea that, um, well, we want to capitalize black because it represents uh, a common shared culture. And then the converse of that in the past week or so has been, well, we don't want to capitalize white because that doesn't represent some common shared culture. But then of course, this is like a perfect example of this movement, like kind of eating its own, which is that you have, this very social justice heavy missile from this museum that is asserting all of these things about a monolithic dominant white culture, right? Like you couldn't have this kind of a poster that they have up on their website if they didn't think that there was a monolithic recognizable white culture. Yeah. So like, I mean, these two points can't coexist, you know? And the thing is, I mean, there's such a strange confluence here, right? Of, like, I don't know about you, but most of the people I know with our shared pigmentation, when they were growing up to this day, or let's say until fairly recently, I never heard any white person say, well, you know, except in maybe some very narrow contexts. I never heard people say, well, you know, as a white person, I think X or... Right. Uh, you know, we white people need to blah, 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 blah. And, um, part of that is cause I, I suppose I grew up, you know, with a more Jewish identity, uh, on the upper West side of Manhattan. 
But I just don't know any white people who talk like that. The only white people I know of who talk like that are extremely woke left-wingers and coprophagic, horrible, uh, alt-right racists, right? There are the only two people I, only two groups of people I know of who, among white people, I mean, then when you get into like this sort of, there's, you know, there's a whole genre of black people making fun of white people that's actually some pretty funny comedy, but that's not what I'm talking about. Among white people, the only white people I know of who really talk aggressively about the existence of a white culture or a white identity are guilt-soaked, woke progressives and, um, and, and I'm, I'm trying very hard not to be, uh, uh, inappropriate in the company of, a uh, a, a, a <laughs> female intern, but, uh, uh, <laughs> men of great masculine insecurity, uh, um, who couch it in their white racism. And men with air quotes around it. Yes, that's right. Uh, and, um, um, uh, men who have worn socks on places other than their feet. Um, (laughs) and, uh, um, and the, the, the thing that is sort of amazing is, is like the whole, the whole idea, if you went a hundred years ago and talked about white culture or the white race to the extent those kinds of phrases were the terms of art in those days it wouldn't be uh, it would not be referring to me or someone named pompella it would be <laughs> referring to um a very thin thin slice of of dutch people of dutch english maybe German heritage by then. And that's about it. Right. Um, right. And, and French, I guess. And then, but not Southern France, if you know what I mean. And then, <laughs> um, uh, and so, but like Italians, Irish, uh, East Europeans, certainly not Jews. Uh, the idea that they were considered would be considered white would have struck all of the people behind like immigration restrictionism as insane. And so the, the, just as a matter of culture, the idea that like the concept of blackness as a culture, because it was an oppressed minority has real heft to it. It means something. It refers to something. There is this common shared experience that people, that, that black people can draw on. There is simply isn't a common shared experience called of white, you know, whiteness that at least historically you can draw on. Now the, 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 the white privilege, you know, the, the, the African-American museum curator people will tell you, well, that's a sign of your white privilege that you think that that's true because there are things that you can get away with because you can assimilate into white culture in ways that black people can't. That's all fair enough. Um, I mean, I think there's at least some merit there, but what people are, you know, but what's so pernicious and so dangerous to me is defining the thing that people are assimilating into as whiteness rather than say bourgeoisness, right? Or middle-classness or Americanness or some other, you know, capacious term that has a semi-permeable boundary that allows people of different skin pigmentations to enter. You know, one of the things that's, that messes up all of these predictions of demographic doom for the United States or demographic, you know, liberation for the United States, depending on your perspective, about it becoming a majority, uh, a majority minority country or a minority, you know, a white minority country by 2050 or 2075 or whatever it is, is that an enormous number of Hispanics identify as white, that a growing number of Asians essentially identify as white because um, they're bourgeois. And so just calling it white becomes really, really problematic. And what you want, like I'm a, I'm a conservative founding classical liberal liked the, you know, uh, America, you know, uh, liking in the industrial revolution and the Protestant reformation and all these kinds of things. I want everybody to assimilate to bourgeois norms. I want everyone to think it's kind of a good thing to get married and have kids and, um, and work hard. Right. I mean, 
that, and if you're a non-white immigrant, that's why you come to this country. Um, and that's why I think it's just downright evil to tell not just black people, not just poor black people, but any people that, oh, you shouldn't believe in things like hard work pays off or punctuality or the traditional family or politeness, uh, because that's just sort of the white man's bag and you can let your freak flag fly. What you're doing is you're telling those people they have permission not to make the most and the best out of their lives. And I think that is really a poisonous and, and, and fundamentally, I mean, I don't think the people behind it are evil, but they're so misguided that they're perpetuating something that, that strikes me as evil. Right. Well, I, I think it's the, it strikes me as the place where there's the weird split between the very old school, radical left-wing people and the kind of like, like, the successor ideology people or whatever you would want to call them is that like, um, I think it was, however, the, however you're supposed to pronounce his name, that Slovenian Marxist, uh, Slavoj Zizek, I think. Zizek, yeah. 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 But he, I think I heard him say something to the effect of like, um, what's so interesting about so many of the like explicitly intersectionality based, kind of modern radical movements and stuff like that is that they 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 are still obviously controlled by interested white parties essentially which is that even if they're stepping in to say um oh well all of these um you know cultural problems that other races or other groups have they all come back to us it's this way of actually you maintain the the power in this weird way, yeah. which is that you put yourself as kind of the protagonist of the person who's able to actually change history and all of that stuff. And I think like your point about the idea that these things should be bourgeois values, like it just seems so obvious when you consider the fact that like the way that they phrase it in this document is all of the um, intellectual inheritance of like Americans work ethic and stuff like that comes from the, the Protestant work ethic. Which is, right. you know, of course, like this really interesting theory, but kind of doesn't hold up to scrutiny because, mm -hmm. you know, like, I mean, like, you know, we had Rhode Island separate off from the other colonies specifically because Catholics felt like they were being oppressed by the Puritans and all of these things. So the idea that like in America in particular, whiteness was this huge hegemonic thing is just like completely ahistorical because like they were all they all viewed themselves as sort of local groups of people with their separate traditions and their separate ethnicities and all of these things. And there was land to claim if you wanted to, uh, you know, do better for your religious community or whatever, and you wanted to try to serve the community better. But it was all based in this idea that like, yeah, people can still be allowed to be weird and live in their own weird communities with their own weird rules. So th that's the funny part about it to me is this idea that somehow like, you know what a white person in America believes because of their whiteness. Like there's no intellectual tradition of that in the United States. So like I, it, it, like all of these things, it's just a bunch of failed social scientists, as far as I can tell, who don't know how to use data. And so have basically just become very bad philosophers, essentially. Yeah, I mean, there's also a kind of like, um, you know, look at, you know, when you like, look at it, look at the top window of a skyscraper or a low flying plane, you see all the humans, you think they're all ants and it's very easy to sort of impose theoretical constructs on them from a great distance because you actually don't know anything about what they're doing on the ground. And there's this sort of ivory tower approach that says, um, well, I have this construct. It makes for a great paper. The last thing in the world I really need to do is um, discover inconvenient facts that ruin my theory. Um, and I think there's an enormous amount of it. But no, on the on the the weirdest thing, I mean, look. So, like again, I, I, I'm sitting here in Homer. Um, I think I would look I would look pretty creepy to an observer walking by because I'm parked outside of a playground. 
um, by myself <laughs> without a without a child. But fortunately, there are no kids in the playground right now, <laughs> and so <laughs> I mean, maybe you know, I'm just you know, maybe you think I'm just you know staking out, waiting for my opportunities. But anyway, uh, it's um, but this is a weird place, you know, and um, it's weird and different for Alaska. Never mind weird and different for America because it's got this weird, it's got this, all of Alaska has this little bit of a Pacific Northwest thing um, in part because it's obviously in the Pacific Northwest in the grand scheme of things. Um, and, but it's also got this, um, but, but Homer's got this really funky kind of, there's something that happens to hippies, serious hippies when life is difficult that doesn't, you know, that, that, that weeds them out. So you find them in places like Maine and Vermont where you have cold winters. Um, and the, the kind of hippies who just need, uh, you know, 240 days of sun sunshine a year, they go to Southern California and they're just different types than the ones up here. And, um, the idea that you could come here and say, Oh, white people, um, and they, they behave so differently than people who live in my neighborhood or people who live in Fairbanks or people who live, you know, a hundred miles up or down the road. It's just, I just find this, I mean, this is my problem with identity politics writ large. So, um, anyway, so I'm sitting here in this car and, um, um, and fortunately it's a rental, um, because if you've ever driven any large stretch of Alaska, which we did the other day, uh, there's an enormous amount of gravel here, partly because God wants to turn this, turn all rock in this state back into gravel. So like, uh, between the, the heating and the freezing of the roads and the permafrost, which is like a real problem up here, um, buckles the road every year. Uh, there's just an enormous amount of gravel that people throw around. And so everybody's windshields, particularly like in Fairbanks, you don't replace your windshield until you have like at least five dings in it because what's the point? Um, and, and so if, if I weren't in a rental and I were in my own car, I would really want something like car shield. Computer systems in cars are the new normal from electronically controlled transmissions to touchscreen displays to dozens of sensors, but you can't fix any of these new features yourself. So when something breaks, it could cost a fortune. And now is not the time for expensive repairs. It's true. I mean, like one of the things I, you know, one of the, as I think anybody who owns a car or anything expensive, there's something uniquely, there needs to be a German word for that feeling you get when you shell out huge piles of money and all you get is the same situation that you had before you had the problem. I mean, it's like no one ever says, Yay, I got new brakes or wahoo, I have new insulation in my house. And so if you can find ways to, to offload that feeling um, by having someone else cover you, uh, it makes a huge amount of sense. And I think CarShield is a great way to go. CarShield has affordable protection plans that can save you thousands for a covered repair, including computers, GPS, electronics, and of course, if you're in Alaska, windshields. The people at CarShield understand payment flexibility is an absolute must. Monthly plans can be customized to your needs with rates as low as $99. No long-term contracts or commitments. CarShield gives you options others won't. You get to choose your favorite mechanic or dealership to do the work, and CarShield takes care of the rest. They also offer complimentary 24-7 roadside assistance and a rental car while yours is being fixed. CarShield has helped over 1 million customers, so drive with confidence knowing you got coverage from America's number one auto protection company. Now, for as low as $99 a month, you can protect yourself from surprises and save thousands for a covered repair. Call 800-CAR-6000 and mention the promo code DINGO, that's D-I-N-G-O, or visit carshield.com and use promo code DINGO to save 10%. That's carshield.com, code DINGO. A deductible may apply. We thank CarShield for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. Um, all right, so Nick, let's let's move to the, the, the light items, various and sundry, 
potpourri. Um, uh, we've been getting feedback from listeners, questions from listeners. What, what, what should we talk about? Um, well, one that I find fascinating is that more than once, which for the Remnant Twitter, I consider to basically be the entire audience screaming at us all at once in unison. Um, we've gotten more than one question about um, Parlor, and I found mm-hmm. a couple of interesting things out about it um, from our listeners, actually. Um, I think I think I heard you say on a recent glop that they probably don't insist on the French pronunciation. The hilarious thing is they do insist on it oh, being really? called Parlay. It is Parlay. Yeah. Is it really? Yeah. Yeah. I did not know that. Serious. Yeah. So I mean, they're they're maybe slightly more serious than like um, Gab or whatever, which I guess was just a place for all of like the the wretched filth of the earth to to go to have an alternative to Twitter. But they they seem to take themselves very seriously. But um, we keep getting questions about it in regards to what it would actually take for a person in your position who has many thousands of tweets and kind of has a following built up. How much better would a social media platform, a sort of imitation Twitter, need to get in order for you to actually regularly post on it? Like would you basically need to have Twitter plus an edit button? Like what would be the thing that would make you start something new or switch off of Twitter? Okay. So let me, let me back up for two seconds. Um, and first of all, you said something interesting, which has been a, a problem I've had to grapple with now for over 20 years, which is that you said something along the lines of the audience you think of as sort of an undifferentiated single voice. Um, <laughs> I have, this is a huge psychological problem because our brains weren't wired to, to deal with the kind of granularity that, that has evolved here. I've had this problem for back when I used to get 400 emails a day at the beginning of NRO. Of I tend to think of the entire body of readers or listeners as a single person. And so I get really mad when they're inconsistent. And... Right when they're not being inconsistent so that person a is saying X and person B is saying Y and they are not obliged by the transitive property to reconcile their views before they give me feedback. And you can, and it can be a real sort of weird psychological struggle to understand that all the stuff you get back from people is, is from individuals, even when, even though there are times when it does seem like a hive mind because they're all saying the same thing. Um, so speaking of hive minds, I generally think Twitter is a terrible place. Um, and I think it's bad for the country, but there's a, and I, I I don't, you know, I don't want to make like Scott Lincecum drop his fork and look up from the table as if he heard some strange sound in the distance by saying, um, uh, there's a, I have a sunk cost because we all know sunk, the sunk cost thing is a fallacy in economics, but, uh, I feel like I have a sunk cost in Twitter. I have this investment of these followers. Um, I know how the thing works. Um, I'm utterly and completely uninterested in parlor or parlay. Um, I have, I literally have, I went in, I reserved my, my Twitter handle and I haven't been back since I have no interest in going. Wise. I think almost, uh, I, and then one thing like, and the only reason I reserved my Twitter handle there was, I was afraid that some jackwad would take it and start tweeting asinine things. And I realized later how stupid that was because someone else took Jonah J Goldberg and started tweeting oh, wonderful racist <laughs> stuff. And so I haven't been back there. I, I should say parlaying racist stuff. I mean, what do you say? What is the verb there? Um, right. I think the whole thing, first of all, I am pretty confident that some of the people who announced they were moving to parlay i'm not going to do it i'm just going to call it parlor i mean i call it gif and i don't care what the creator of gifts calls it um uh the i'm convinced some people were being paid without disclosing it i'm just convinced of it um there was just way too much on you know on on our signal go announce that you're leaving twitter and joining parlay Parlor. Um, <laughs> but then the other problem with it is, I mean, so like, first of all, I think there's some corruption shenanigans going on. Second of all, 
Um, I'm bothered by the fact that as far as I can tell, and I have not devoted a lot of time or energy to this, virtually all of the big name people who said they were going to, to par parlor, um, and leaving Twitter were just liars. They were just mm. liars participating in a marketing scheme. And maybe some of them weren't intentionally liars in the, when they said it, but the fact that so many of them returned to Twitter within 24 to 48 hours suggests to me that they were lying and they were trying to just basically gin up momentum for other people for to get other people to leave Twitter without any intention themselves of leaving Twitter. Benny Johnson said, I've been on Twitter for X number of years. I have all these followers. I'm done. I'm moving to parlor. And within 24 hours, he had a couple dozen tweets on Twitter. I mean, they're just, they're just lying. And I just, I've, and I, I resent the scam aspect of it. But then even more broadly than that, I think the whole thing is BS. And, uh, you know, the main problem with Twitter is not that it censors free speech. Um, there are individual examples of it going too far with all of that. Um, but the real problem with Twitter as in America right now is that there's too much speech. It's just, it's like mm. people get to say whatever they want. I'm not saying that they shouldn't be able to say whatever they want, but they are not being held back by any bourgeois norms about what is decent or polite. Um, and, uh, and the idea that what this country was really lacking at this crucial moment was another social media platform for people to be even freer in their anger and asininity, I think is one of the dumbest friggin' ideas, um, out there. And, uh, and, and, all, and then there's this thing which I've been fighting against for, for my, almost my entire professional life is that the last thing conservatives, I mean, I, I, my relationship with the professional conservative movement is quite frayed these days. Um, and a lot of the people who were part of this groundswell to move to, to parlor, um, I don't want anything to do with. Um, and I think they're hucksters and, uh, team players and cheerleaders, and they're in on something that I don't want to be in on, but some of them weren't, some of them, I think were just gullible and, 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 and misguided regardless. Let's just assume that they are all good conservatives and good standing with good motives and all the, all the rest. Conservatives don't need any more fricking parallel institutions. They don't need their own ghettos anymore. They didn't need their, one of the reasons we're in the mess that we're in is because they've been conservatives are pursuing this strategy of ghettoization for 25 freaking years. Um, and the idea that like somehow you're going to get all the, again, let's just assume they're all good faith people, all the quote unquote conservatives to leave Twitter, which is a, at least an ideologically bipartisan or transpartisan uh, platform to join this other thing where they get to speak freely because God knows the one thing this country desperately needs is for Devin Nunes to be able to more freely speak his goddamn mind. Um, and so the idea that like, okay, so all the conservatives go over there, right? So now Benny Johnson gets to run free to the tune of born free owning the libs and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> None of the mainstream media is going to pay attention to it. They're not going to go there. They're not right. going to join it. They don't want to join those people to the extent they're going to pay any attention to it is to cherry pick the biggest examples of asininity and then broadcast it out into the world. But they're not going to engage. They're not going to be part of a conversation there. And so the, the, the immediate announcement that, oh, all the real conservatives who really want to speak freely are going to go over there, um, virtually guaranteed its failure for the thing that it actually wants to do, which is be this more broad, open forum for debate than Twitter is. Um, and which is why, like, within 72 hours, they started, you know, the parlor people started banning people on parlor who were racist and doing dumb things and, and all of that. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. I think the whole thing is going to go down in flames. I think it is an incredibly stupid enterprise. Um, and if... You know, all the stuff about cancel culture, you know, notwithstanding, there's some real problems there and all that kind of thing. We live in a time of more unfettered free speech than at any time in human history. And, um, uh, and I've been thinking about this a lot lately. The, you know, Mara, we talked with David Scarbeck about how prison gangs form, right? They're th thrust into this sort of 
artificial state of nature where they have to contend with violence and and there are no authority figures that can have the sort of Max Weberian, Weberian um, imposition of the, you know, the, the reason the state exists according to Weber is that it has a monopoly on violence and therefore it can regulate violence among its, its members of the society. In prisons, because the prison guards don't engage, the gangs have to self-regulate to protect themselves and they have to come up with their own rules and regulations about violence and whatnot. I think that a lot of people today are freaking out about the lack of free speech because of that dynamic that essentially can't what cancel culture is is the free speech equivalent of a virtual prison gang where they are trying to on their own regulate free speech because the government isn't regulating free speech because no one is regulating free speech with any with any legal or political authority except in some very narrow band of things and uh and the same thing can be applied to like what what YouTube and Google and Twitter and Facebook, the way they police speech is better understood as this prison gang model about what do you do to regulate things when anything is permiss everything is permissible. And uh, the idea that creating parlor or parlay or um, which is the equivalent of saying, let's build an annex on the prison without with even less supervision from the guards um was the solution to our problems is a head past the sphincter uh you know stupidity in my eye my my view anyway yeah um, well that's uh, it's like um uh i saw this article um late yesterday that was on the back of of course barry weiss and andrew sullivan both resigning at about the same moment basically and um it was this this it wasn't in like jacobin magazine or something either that was what was so shocking about it it was something not like that um if i can find it maybe we'll put it in the show notes but it was um this article about the the wonderfulness of the internal company slack channels mm. at these media institutions that these are sort of these wonderful grassroots places that are like the line was something like they're like the water cooler, but now more powerful because the bosses now see what the employees are doing. And that does make me think of when you put it as like the prison gang thing, it's like you, you always have the scene in any prison movie where the, the completely evil looking warden is looking down at a prison riot. And I feel like it's just a similar thing, this idea that you have this channel that's not public, but it's public to all your coworkers. Right. So it's still got this internal dynamic, even though it has a pretty wide reach within your institution. Like, the, of course, they're going to regulate speech if there's no one else regulating the speech, because it is. It's, of course, like a prison dynamic. Like, it's it's so sinister in some ways. I don't know. It's kind of funny. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean like... Regulating speech, I, I, I get, look, I mean, David French is a great friend. He did a great job hosting The Remnant the other day. Um, thank you, David. And thank you to David Bonson for being on. Um, but uh, there is this sinister connotation to the phrase regulating speech um, that really needs to be contextualized. Uh, you know who regulates speech? Librarians. When they shush you. You know, I mean, there are all sorts of realms of life where speech is regulated. Um, when you tell your little kids, use your inside voice. When you tell your kid to say thank you and please, that's regulating speech. And it's a good thing. Um, and this idea that that and so I just find that there is this, as you know, as listeners know, I am deeply married to this idea that we live in this romantic moment where we believe that any restrictions or impositions upon our true selves is um, illegitimate and that we must all be able to express the truest, most authentic version of ourselves or we are not truly free. Um, and I just think that's all garbage. Um, and that uh, uh, I wanna live in a bourgeois society I wish we could come out with something that wasn't so Frenchy sounding than bourgeois. Um, but I like middle-class norms. I like basic 
common sense rules of decency and politeness and good manners. And, um, uh, and I'm a strong believer that the best societies function best when they have reasonable constraints on your most animalistic passions. Um, you know, just not a lot of societies are greatly benefited when we tell everybody the highest moral authority in the world is your own friggin' gut. And, um, and so uh, we should have, you know, I mean, everything that the founding fathers and the philosophers and the classical liberals taught us is that we should have one set of rules when we think about government and another set of rules when we think about everything else. And, um, we should not anthropomorphize government. We should not treat it, turn it into something that it isn't. Um, and the same thing goes for politicians because government has that monopoly on violence and is the only entity out there that can legally kill you. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, um, you need to restrain its power, divide its power, check its power and all these kinds of things. And that its impositions on speech are just simply different than the librarians, at least if it's not a public library, uh, the librarians restrictions on speech. And these kinds of distinctions have been utterly lost on vast swaths of the right. Um, and it drives me a little nuts. And, you know, I, I got to say, you know, one of the institutions that has been great about this historically um, and continues to this day to try to find um, some balance in things is the Bradley Foundation. I don't have to tell you that making sense of current events during this extraordinary time can be trying. Conceived in Liberty, the Bradley Speakers series is a new video series that offers meaningful perspectives through engaging 15-minute interviews. Their guests focus on the big picture and distill what the latest developments mean for your and our deeply held commitments to restore, strengthen, and protect the principles and institutions of American exceptionalism. Visit bradleyfdn.org slash liberty. So that's Bradley, all one word, Bradley. And then the FDN is like the abbreviation for foundation. So bradleyfdn.org slash liberty to watch the most recent episode featuring Wall Street Journal columnist Kim Strassel. That's Bradley with an L-E-Y at the end, fdn.org slash liberty to watch the video. New episodes will debut weekly, so go, go back often and subscribe to their YouTube channel to be notified whenever a new one is posted. We thank Bradley and the Conceived in Liberty Bradley Speaker Series for co-sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. Okay, so there's one last point which I wanted to make, and then I really have to go. I have this really important call I got to do, um, and I got to finish a column. Um, and there's some rights left in my blood magic, but anyway, um, I, I, in the G file on Wednesday, which is available only to, um, paid subscribers, unless you know, a, a paid member of the dispatch community who can forward it to you, you're allowed to forward these things. Um, big if true. Um, it, I think this is, I, I mean, it's worthy of a longer conversation, but so I was thinking about in pop culture how all these different magic incantations, you know, um, you know, classically like abracadabra, you know, Shazam, whatever, uh, the 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 Latin sort of Latin phrases that um, what's her name uses in Game of Thrones to make the dragons breed fire and all these kinds of things, you know, Dracarys, all this kind of thing. There used to be this thing you know this trope in popular culture where if you just encanted if you if you just said the right words magical things would happen right and there's nothing wrong with that and it dawned on me and i just had a parenthetical thing in the g file that that's sort of gone by the wayside and now more and more you just get the the sort of yoda like squinting or the momentary where like what's her name uh the girl from stranger things she closes her eyes for a moment, maybe gets a little bit of a nosebleed as she draws on the wellspring of her own innerness and, you know, power. And um, uh, whether it's the force or telekinesis or all these kinds of things, you know, you know, and I think it kind of begins with the force where you have, you know, 
Obi-Wan can use, you know, go with your feelings, you trust your instincts, all these kinds of things. Very romantic. There's no longer, it's much more rare to see in pop culture people invoking some power outside of themselves, right? Because when you do an incantation, what you're doing is you are drawing on some god or some icon or some talisman or something outside of yourself and you are asking for its power to channel through you. And instead, this romantic turn in, the pop, in pop culture, you are now drawing on something within yourself. You're pulling from your own deepest reservoirs of your own special power that draws from you, whether it's midichlorians or whatever. And it's a, it's an, I think it's an interesting cultural tell that jibes a little bit with the Yuval Levin thing about institutions as character forming versus institutions as platforms, where, um, you know, in the Hayekian sense, pulling on magic from outside yourself is a way of drawing on the power of others and other institutions or other things. And, and, and there's less of that in pop culture. And there's more, I am born special. I have something special within me that is not reliant upon some external institution or set of rules. Um, and all I need is my green lantern, like assertion of will, and I can draw as much power out of my true self as I need. And I think, I don't know, there's something there that I think is just sort of interesting um, and worth exploring further. But, um, but now I must, because I am actually obliged to others rather than the needs of myself, um, I actually have to go. Um, so I'm going to ask Nick, uh, Nick, you can further explain for people who missed the last time who you actually are and why you're here. <laughs> you didn't just, you just didn't want, I mean, you look like you just wandered off the street, uh, yeah. but you didn't actually just wander off the street. If you and Valerie want to have a chat for a second or anything like that, that's fine, but I got to go and, um, and I will be back in Washington next week for more normal remnanting. So thanks to everybody for their patience with us. This was a command appearance for me in Alaska. And um, I'll see all you guys next time. <laughs> I know you want this as a podcast. There you go. Okay. So um, as you just heard, Jonah had to leave. Um, as he does, in fact, have other things to do with his day and his time other than the remnant. Uh, which is a shame. I wish we could just do like a like a 24-7 broadcast and just never stop. But um, yeah, so... Uh, I figured there's the potential that this could be a little two-parter thing because um, I should probably reintroduce myself, but then also introduce Valerie, who has been extremely helpful in the production of the show since she started as an intern a little while ago. Um, so um, I guess I'll be selfish and start with myself since I feel like my story is probably less interesting than Valerie's. Um, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah i i don't know maybe maybe um so i am obviously the new new jack butler um i've been trying to devise of course because there was the classic formulation when jack was here which was that their dynamic duo superhero name was jogo and butts um which i believe jack was not a huge fan of and who maybe somewhat angry at me if he hears this for even saying that actually but um i think if you want to go for like a sci-fi name it could be like jogo and new jack something like that um and like and you jack to make it sci-fi sounding but um yeah so i basically the if you have no clue who i am it's because i've basically been radio silent for for a while, basically since the, the pandemic started, because it really upended all of the um, things that we were doing for recording podcasts, because we can't really record in person anymore or record in the AI building or even really record in the dispatch office. So all of our physical locations got stripped from us. So I just kind of faded into the background for, for a good amount of time there. But um, yeah, I basically, I took over Jack's job. Um, and I am a humble servant of Jonah and I'm very grateful that he allowed me to eat today. So that was good. Um, but yeah, Valerie, why don't you introduce yourself? Cause I think you probably have a more 
interesting story of how you got here than I do. I mean, I'm just I'm just a, a normal person. I don't know. I'm I'm from Chicago, from the South Side. Um, I'm going into my junior year at Yale, um, and I I don't know. My one thing that I do at Yale is I write for the Yale Daily News. Um, so I wrote like for example, I don't know. I I cover I cover just Yale in general, um, like the administration that sort of thing. And so I think the most interesting thing that I wrote a couple of weeks ago was about that whole cancel Yale thing um, that began on, I think it was 4chan and then uh, Ann Coulter got a hold of it. And then uh, I'm sure people know the story from there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I don't know, it's, you know, I'm supposed to be in DC right now, um, you know, being the unpaid intern uh, as one, as one is for, for Jonah. Um, but uh, most of the job has consisted of me sitting in my bed uh, in Chicago, um, zoom, zooming with Nick, which has been fun. Yeah, it's a, um, it's a, it's a definitely an atypical, atypical work environment. And I, I would like to think that I would still be extremely casual with you if we were in person in the building. But God knows this has been such a bizarre time. But we've we've tried to make the most of it. Yeah, well, it's been fun, and, and you know, I can attest um, from Zoom calls that uh, you know Jonah was correct in saying that some you know you, you're the beard and the hair is quite uh, it's quite um, you know crazy and flowing right now. But I will say right. the same thing about Jonah. Um, he mentioned it. I think it's something about getting a haircut. Um, uh, and I, I don't know how how long Jonah's hair is usually, but it, it it's getting to be quite a mane. Yeah, yeah. There there was a fair amount of um, uh, uh, return shots that could have been fired there. I mean, he he looks pretty grizzly manny himself. I think he's had to trim. If if I understand the the timeline of this correctly, I think he's had to trim the beard a couple of times for TV appearances and whatnot. But I as the 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 lurking figure yeah. in the shadows in the background have had to do no such thing because no one wants to see my face, which means that I have had no hair trims and I have not touched the beard since like the beginning of March. So like it's gotten really like mountain manny and bad. Like I don't know, have you ever thought of you know going creative and like you know going ca- like Hunger Games Capital and doing like like some flame designs? Yeah, yeah, I could do it. Like um, I could design my beard to look like the paint job on a car that a man in his midlife crisis gets. Well, because you know if there's any if there's ever a time to do to do anything crazy with it with your appearance, it's now because no one's gonna see you. Like. So I I surrendered my my dignity entirely and uh, got a TikTok. Nice. And uh, you know people there's like this one audio clip where everyone's saying you know like if you're ever gonna shave your head do it now. Um, I watched a couple of videos like that at like 4 a.m. and I was tempted, but I like my hair too much and I would I would look dumb. Yeah, you need you need to preserve some dignity or else you just go insane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's already low enough because I was on TikTok. So. Right. Right. Well, um, for the first like potpourri episode that we've done in my generation, at least, I think that went pretty well. We had like so many topics to talk about. And I, the way it went, I thought was really interesting because um, I, I think that thing right at the end is actually maybe more interesting than the amount of time we dedicated to it would, would give it credit for it, which is the, the internal, the internal reassertion of your power in like fiction rather than using magic words and things like that. Because I was... Um, I'm actually reading, so we've talked about this a little bit. I'm reading this book that's like this overview of a lot of American literature. And that's like a theme that keeps coming up is that there's this particularly like weird American quality, which is that like almost none of the great sort of early American literary figures have any need for an external God, which is why most of them were kind of like deists or they weren't part of an established church or anything like that. And, um, I think it's interesting because there's like this weird, uniquely American quality to that. Um, and it's like, it's part of our weird, like, I forget what the title of Ross Douthat's book was, but it's like, it's part of this weird legacy we have of being like this, this nation of heretics in this weird way. And so there's like really positive parts to that, but then also these really weird backdrops to that, that make everything really complicated and, and strange. Um, but it's, I think that's probably an export of American culture. I'm just waiting for the television show where 
you get to call on if, if we're all supposed to have just these internal forces and you can't actually use your magic words or anything like that on the topic of the podcast today i want to see the netflix show where the protagonist calls upon their inner whiteness in order to draw the magical power out of the universe i think that that would be a really a really woke show I well think. I, think I was thinking good. about that you know while you guys were talking about the like the smithsonian um you know page on the whiteness because like um you know i i don't know anybody who who says you know as a white person i i do think that there might be like i i have heard people in class be like you know like as so and so and i'm just like well i would rather be my like you know be valerie and not be like lumped into like this monolithic you know, because I don't know, like when I think of myself, I don't think white. Sure. But, you know, I understand that um, because of cultural kind of forces, somebody else of a different kind of race or different ethnicity might think, um, might have to think, you know, I am so-and-so race, um, you know, as sure. their primary like, like like identifier. Like I know that, you know, it's nice that I don't have to think about that, but it does seem to be, a, it, it's probably a problem for people who are not me. Um but all the same, that whole, like, the whiteness thing, like, worried me um, because uh, it, it's interesting because two people sent that to me, like, the the uh, the webpage for this for the Smithsonian. Um, and uh, one person was like, we're going to have a race war. And I was like, I don't know yet, but it's worrying. Um, right. Yeah. And then there was, like, the somebody else commented about how um, most of the attributes on that website were, like, pretty positive things like I can pull it up like I'm looking at it like right now mm -hmm. um but yeah like there's bad there's things that on here that are bad you know like I don't think that you know your wealth should equal your worth sure but uh you know I don't see what's quite wrong with planning for the future um and that you should right. like progress I there's the part in here where it says like in terms of aesthetics it says uh steak and potatoes bland is best um I admit that when I go to Chipotle um, or any like restaurant, I do not get like the spicy salsa because I can't handle it. Right. But I also like never, like, I don't like bland food. Like, you know, it's kind of there, you know, there's that trope about, you know, how like white people's food is like, you know, n there's no spices, nothing, but I'm sure. still like, come on. Um, it is funny though. Well, I think, I think that may be the perfect note to end on because with the mention of Chipotle, this has become a very millennial podcast. Yeah, I think so too. But I'm also hungry because we were supposed to do this podcast like like an hour before it happened. And so I haven't had breakfast. <laughs> right. Well, th this is the advantage of the boss not being here is we can now reveal to everyone that uh, Jonah, Jonah, Jonah was not on time. We'll put it that way. By like an hour, but that's fine. That's fine. He is also, to be fair, in the middle of Homer, Alaska, which, if I had to guess, is probably not like a 5G hotspot, I would guess. Probably not. I would I would like to go to Alaska, but I think Jonah wrote in the G file that uh, you should only go in the like um, if if someone can pay, if somebody else can pay for it. Um, yeah, he said only go uh, if you're going in the winter. Only go if someone else is paying for it. If you're going in the summer, then you should go because it's wonderful. Well, either way, I need someone to pay for it because I am, of course, the unpaid right. intern. So Sure, sure, exactly. Um, but we wish Jonah luck off in the wilderness of Alaska and um, hope that he catches many halibut. I think he was talking about halibut. I can't remember what the... Yeah. Yeah. But um, we wish him good and plenty fortunes on that front. And Jonah and the whole crew... We'll see you next time.